0: For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore, sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi. And welcome to another podcast. that's PAW with a silent G on unveiling Jesus Christ. In this episode, we're going to be covering Revelation chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, which are an introduction to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The ultimate unveiling of Jesus Christ is the second coming of Jesus Christ, which John wastes no time in discussing, in these two verses in this podcast. So these verses are his introduction to the second coming and it's gonna be followed with a crescendo of details that follow in the visions that he receives on the island of Patmos. So let's get right to it. We're gonna start with uh, Revelation chapter one, verse seven, which states, quote, behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him even so amen Close quote. now the book of revelation unveils the glorified jesus christ at his second coming it's a major theme of the book that is centered on this event and this it's basically a focal point so the uh the details <clears throat> leading up to the second coming as well as the second coming itself are frequently misunderstood and elder Bruce R McConkie had this to say about that subject he said quote there is probably no doctrine and no event that is less understood than our Lord's personal return to live and be once more with men, many strange and peculiar and false opinions are afloat. The second coming is totally unknown among non-Christians, totally misunderstood among Christians generally, and even some of the very elect need more enlightenment than what they now have relative to what lies ahead. The confusion that Elder McConkie is talking about relates to the signs of the times as well as the number and times of Christ's appearances at the time of the second coming. Indeed, many, because of the confusion and the seeming delay in the second coming, have virtually abandoned the idea of a literal return. Nevertheless. Uh, There is no future event that is more extensively documented in modern revelation, and the literal second coming is mentioned at least 50 times in various passages in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Pearl of Great Price. The first of these in the Doctrine and Covenants is found in Doctrine and Covenants section two, and it's only one verse, and it says this, Behold, I will send unto you the priesthood, by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Close quote. Now this verse I picked out of many that could have been chosen because this is the verse uh, that comes to us from September 23rd, 1823 on the night of Moroni's visit. This was essentially what Moroni told Joseph Smith. And so from the very first appearance of an angel of the restoration after the first vision came the news that the second coming was near at hand and before that day would come the uh elijah the prophet would be revealed and so it's very noteworthy and this is the earliest recorded revelation we have uh, at the time of the restoration of the gospel in the 1800s now this of course is then followed up with the account in doctrine and covenant section 110 verse 16 which says quote therefore the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands and by this ye may know that the great and dreadful day of the lord is near even at the doors close quote so that's from the revelation on April 3rd 1836 when Moses Elijah and Elias as well as the Savior appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and the last keys of the restoration bestowed on them were of course the keys of the sealing power that were given to them by the prophet Elijah and so we have kind of this bookend set of revelations one in September of 1823 with the visit of Moroni pronouncing that Elijah would come and then the fulfillment of that prophecy on April 3rd of 1836 which essentially brought forth the last keys needed for the complete restoration of the gospel in this dispensation. By that, I mean to say priesthood keys. The The restoration is ongoing, but in terms of the priesthood keys, those were the last keys that had to be bestowed uh, for the restoration to be complete in the sense of priesthood keys. And so now we're now looking forward to the second coming, which is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's going to be a great day. For those who are prepared, and for those it's going to be a dreadful day. So now focusing on some of the phraseology in Revelation 1-7, we note that it begins with the word, Behold. So this is a Hebraism or a Hebrew idiom or expression. It's similar to the use of the words, Yea, or Even. And uh, this is something that is used to kind of uh, catch people's attention, to slow us down a little bit because the Lord has something important to say. What it kind of reminds me about is my daughter Jill, who coincidentally is not Hebrew, but she uh, sometimes uses... (laughs) a hebrew idiom as we're driving in the country and it might be a country road or it it might be somewhere where there is in the fields you can see these hay crops that have been stacked in loose stacks or maybe there are bales or whatever and we'll be driving along very calmly and all of a sudden she'll shout hey <laughs> and it's h a y not h e y And she thinks she's so funny because she sees a haystack and so she says hey unless she says it so loud that you think you're running into something or there's some imminent danger or something like that and everybody's freaking out because she's (laughs) she's shouting hey and uh, so that's just one of those things even though she's not Hebrew she thinks she acts has to act like one and yell and shouts hey uh, to get our attention but that's the function of this word behold it's to slow everything down get everybody attention because the Lord has something important to say now I will hasten to add that uh, whenever Jill did her little saying she never had anything important to say that's all she wanted to do was say hey because she saw some hay. but at any rate the word behold appears three thousand two hundred and five times in all the scriptures it makes me think that you know this would make a great jeopardy clue um and so uh, if the contestant were to choose numbers for 500 alex trebek would say the answer is 3205 at which point the contestant would have to come up with the proper question which would be how many times does the word behold appear in all the scriptures and the answer is of course 3205 <laughs> but at any rate the uh the use of the word behold In addition to being a tool to get everybody's attention, it also expresses suddenness or something unexpected. And so we see an illustration of this in John chapter 1 verse 29 where it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so again, the sudden or unexpected appearance of the Lamb of God uh, at the time of Christ's baptism warranted a behold in the scripture. And so as the the term is used here in Revelation 1-7, it basically commands our attention to the second coming as a major theme of the book of Revelation and so what we find is that the revelation begins and ends with predictions of the second coming and so as we begin this discussion of the introduction to the second coming we'll find that this introduction is then going to be followed by a crescendo of detail in the remaining visions and uh, keep in mind that John's visions and the details in his visions all flow chronologically. And I I like to analogize this uh, methodology that John uses and the structure in the book of Revelation as the means for understanding a great deal about other revelations in the scriptures, including even modern revelation, the book of Mormon, the doctrine and covenants, uh, the pearl of great price. Sometimes we get all of what we call the signs of the times uh, thrown at us And they seem to be in this order that we don't really understand. They're just in various sections that uh, aren't necessarily chronological and they don't always have a lot of context associated with them and so it's very difficult To kind of properly put them in their proper time frame and in the order in which they are to occur and I find that the book of Revelation solves many of these problems of misunderstanding and the order in which things are supposed to happen because everything that John talks about unless he makes a specific makes it clear that he's stepping out of his chronological sequence for example in Revelation chapter 12 through 14, which I refer to as the flashback chapters, everything else proceeds pretty much in order unless he tells us otherwise. And by having everything set forth contextually um, and by details in a chronological order, it starts to put many of these signs of the times in order. And I I refer to the book of Revelation as a Rosetta Stone for understanding the signs of the times because once you understand John's structure and his chronology, you can start plugging in the signs of the times where they fit into his chronology and everything then starts to become very clear. And so the this is the Revelation Rosetta Stone and we're not gonna get into it in detail, but I'd simply suggest that you go back and listen to my Come Follow Me podcast number four from October 22nd of 2023, which talks about the book of Revelation structure. If you understand the structure of the book of Revelation and the sequences of details and events therein, suddenly all of the signs of the time begin to become much more clear and we have a clearer understanding of what uh, is supposed to happen at the time of the second coming and precedent to that. Now, what we have in Doctrine and Covenants section 6811 is a statement that says, quote, and unto you it shall be given to know the signs of the times and the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. Close quote. I see in that particular section of the Doctrine and Covenants a fulfillment as we better understand what John is describing in the book of Revelation. And truly his book fulfills the statements made in this section of the Doctrine and Covenants that we shall know the signs of the times. Now we know them, In a kind of a generic sense uh, because we have the scriptures they're all laid out there we can identify them some of them are very clear and easy to understand the second uh, or the uh, restoration of the gospel for example is one of those major signs of the times it's in the past we understand it from a historical standpoint we understand the role that it has to play as a event that precedes the second coming but there's a lot of other events that are not nearly so clear and a little bit harder to figure out but we're told in this section that we're supposed to know these things we're given to know them and yet nevertheless where what do we really feel like we feel a little bit more like what is said in matthew chapter 16 verse 3 where it says where the savior was talking to the scribes and pharisees and he said quote o ye hypocrites Ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? Close quote. And that's a little bit how we feel, isn't it? Sometimes because there's so many things and concepts and principles and doctrines and teachings out there that just kind of keep us wondering, Where does this fit in? Uh, As we go through our daily lives and we see some of the, the news reports and everything that's going on, we're trying to figure out where exactly does this fit in in the timeline of all these signs of the times? And I'm suggesting to you That these are things that can be better understood by the Rosetta Stone of the book of Revelation as I've described it to you. And we're going to talk about them as we go through. This is not the occasion on which I'm going to lay that out all for you. But go back and take a look at uh, my podcast number four that deals with the book of Revelation structure because I think it will be very helpful to you. Okay, let's go on to the next little phrase in Revelation uh, chapter 1 verse 7 that indicates that when Christ comes... He cometh with clouds. Now, we find a number of similar prophecies in the scriptures, starting in Matthew 24:30, which was the uh, prediction that Christ made on the eve of his crucifixion when he was on the Mount of Olives with his disciple. And he told them, they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and a parallel account is in mark 1462 which also says he's coming in the clouds of heaven now compare this also with certain other scriptures such as revelation 1112 this is the occasion when the two witnesses have done their testifying in Jerusalem. They are killed, they lie in the streets for three and a half days, and then at the time of their resurrection, it states, quote, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither, and they ascended up to, a, up to heaven in a cloud. Now notice here, what we have is the concept that Christ is supposed to come down in the clouds of heaven, but in the case of these two witnesses, which is when the resurrection begins, uh, precedent to his formal second coming, we have them also ascending up to heaven in a clouds, and that's matched by 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that also says that the saints shall be caught up together in the clouds so we have clouds people going up in the clouds they're in the clouds and then they're going to be coming down with the clouds i mean we got clouds everywhere and so in revelation 10 1 is another contextual verse that talks about the clouds in heaven it says on this occasion i saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud and that's a reference to the savior coming down at the time of the gathering at Adam on Diamond, which occurs three and a half years before the second coming itself. Similarly, we have a description of that event in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, where it says, quote, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven, close quote. And again, that's a statement that describes Christ's coming, at the gathering at Adamondioman. In Revelation 14, 14, similarly we have a statement that, quote, Behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. This describes the Savior and the hundred and forty four thousand servants that stand together with him. On Mount Zion and uh, essentially this is the time of the harvest as we come toward the end of that chapter when we're going to get the harvest of exaltation worthy people and uh, so that's what that is describing finally in DNC 84 section 5 it says quote and house referring to the temple in New Jerusalem shall be built unto the Lord and a cloud shall rest upon it which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord." And just to put that again in context, this is describing Christ's first uh, descent of the second coming, his first visit of the second coming when he appears to the saints in New Jerusalem. And I believe that that occurs at the time of the dedication of the temple that will be built in uh, New Jerusalem or uh, in Zion, located at Independence, Missouri. So coming more generally to a discussion about clouds, this comes from the Greek word "nephelē," which symbolizes majesty or a sign of the presence of God and clouds of glory. We find illustrations of this at the clouds of Sinai, when the cloud of the glory of the Lord covered Mount Sinai for six days. It's also described as what is known as the Shekinah, which means the divine presence it is the visible presence of the Lord it was the cloud that preceded the travels of the Israelites in the wilderness it's the cloud um, that exists in above the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat it is the cloud that covered the temple of solomon at the time of its dedication all of these things are representations of the shekinah or the divine presence of god his visible presence to the people you also have it manifested on the mount of transfiguration when it reflects in matthew 17:5 that god's voice meaning god the father his voice was heard out of a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. We also have reference to a cloud on the day of Ascension, recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where it says he was taken up and a cloud received him. And that scripture also describes the fact that the same manner in which Jesus Christ ascended from the Mount of Olives in a cloud is foreshadow and a type of the manner of his returning at the time of his second coming when he appears in a cloud again at the Mount of Olives and you know I have to tell you my earliest memory of learning about this verse where where Christ was going to be taken up into heaven was from my Uncle Jim when I was a kid growing up on my grandfather's ranch because the scripture talks about the the Savior being taken up in a cloud and his disciples who were the apostles kind of standing around and an angel comes down and uh, and basically asks them you men of Galilee why stand ye there gazing into heaven and my uncle Jim used to quote this to us because if we were standing around and weren't doing our work or we're goofing around or doing something like that uh, otherwise being kind of unproductive he'd walk up to us and say and would quote this verse to us he'd say you men of Galilee Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Which was his way of saying, you guys need to get back to work. (laughs) So I don't know if that was what the angel was intending in uh, Acts chapter 1, but uh, there was the admonition that was given to them in the verse immediately before at the end of Matthew chapter 8, where he says, go ye forth unto all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In the very next verse, he's asking, why are you guys standing around? Don't you have something to do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so at any rate, we have the uh, this cloud in heaven essentially uh, refers to this uh, a covering, is the way the Hebrews kind of saw it, because clouds cover the sky. And then you have the use of the, the term cloud uh, in a proverbial sense. So if you have a cloud without rain... That would be proverb a proverbial saying of a man who doesn't keep his promise. So a, a person who doesn't keep his promise is like a cloud without rain. And uh, the whiteness of the cloud is a symbol for victory and purity and grace and things like that. So that's probably more than you ever wanted to know about clouds in your whole life. Uh, and so let's move on and talk as we continue our discussion of Revelation chapter 1-7. There's this phrase that uh, he comes with the clouds and, quote, every eye shall see him, close quote. Now, that's kind of an interesting statement, and you have to stop and think a little bit about what exactly does that mean to say that every eye shall see him, meaning Christ, at the time of his second coming. we get a little bit of help with this question in the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 1-7, which says this, quote, for behold, he cometh in the clouds with ten thousands of his saints in the kingdom, clothed with the glory of his Father, and every eye shall see him, and they who pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. So in this verse we're, we're getting some additional information, and specifically I want to focus for a moment on this concept that there are these ten thousands of his saints are caught up in the clouds and will be with christ at his at his second coming so we have to ask ourselves who are these guys right we'll have to add girls as well but i'm saying specifically who are these guys because that's a line from the uh, 1969 movie of butch cassidy and the sundance kid now if you're like me you grew up i watched that movie as a teenager and uh, you have uh, paul newman and Robert Redford who are Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid respectively and they rob this train and then they're pursued by this what I have to refer to as the Delta Force of ancient posses because the posse was led by none other than Lord Baltimore who was a renowned Indian tracker and so as Butch and Sundance are trying to get away from this uh, very elite posse um they just can't shake him because the this renowned indian tracker keeps figuring out where they're going and uh, ultimately the only way they escape the posse is by jumping off this cliff into a deep river gorge with the river far below and uh, but the the scene I remember very well is because the whole scene some of whom say it lasted longer than it should have some of the critics but they at any rate they're all running looking over their shoulders and the posse keeps coming and keeps coming and and every time in the scene they turn around and say who are these guys? <laughs> and so now we have to ask ourselves, who are these ten thousands of his saints? Now, keep in mind that the 10,000 is a symbolic number. And I'll refer you back to my Come Follow Me podcast, number five from October 29th of 2023 that talks about numerology and symbols, where if you listen to the entire podcast, I'm giving you the nutshell version, but 10 is a symbolic number that represents the whole of a part all right and so if we only had 10 saints who were caught up to the clouds that would be a representation of a whole part of all the saints of God but in this case we have 10 thousands of them so we have 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, which is a superlative number that incorporates the use of the world number four to express this geographical completeness. In other words, it's all his saints. Now, but there are different kinds of saints, right? And I'm going to get up on my soapbox here just a little bit because you have saints and then you have saints, right? Some saints are exaltation worthy and other saints are not exaltation worthy and john's focus is almost entirely on exaltation worthy saints and so you have to think of this in terms of our goals as members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints we're just not trying to get to heaven that's not our real goal our real goal is to be exalted in the celestial kingdom and to achieve everlasting life and eternal life in the highest degree of celestial glory. So let me remind you the Doctrine and Covenants section 131 verses 1 and 2 says this in the celestial glory there are three heavens or degrees and in order to obtain the highest a man must enter into this order of the priesthood meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Now, obviously, this pertains also to the sisters because men cannot be exalted without women nor can women be exalted without men. Both have to come together in the sealing ordinance and then live faithful to their covenants if they're going to be exalted. So, exaltation is a family affair. And this is what John is talking about. He's talking about those who achieve exaltation. Now, how do I know that? Okay, I know that because I've read section 1641 of the California Civil Code and that tells me that that's what the answer is. Now, I'm I'm speaking a little bit tongue in cheek, but let me show you what Civil Code section 1641 says. It says, quote, the whole of a contract is to be taken together so as to give effect to every part if reasonably practicable each clause helping to interpret the other. Close quote. Now you're sitting there scratching your head, asking yourself, "What is this guy talking about? This doesn't have anything to do with the uh, the idea or concept that only exaltation-worthy saints are going to be those who are numbered among, about, among these ten thousands of saints." that will accompany Jesus Christ at the second coming. So indulge me just a little bit here. Let's go back to the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 1, 7, and we're going to treat it like we're trying to interpret it in the same way that a court would have to interpret a contract That seems to have a little bit of an ambiguity associated with it. So there are rules of construction, rules of interpretation that guide our court system for figuring out what the intent of the parties was or were when they entered into this contract or contracts, all right? And so essentially we come back to the Joseph Smith translation. It says, for behold, he cometh in the clouds with ten thousands of his saints in the kingdom, clothed with the glory of his father. Now the answer to our query is contained in these phrases in this verse of the Joseph Smith translation. So let me narrow it down a little bit more and identify the two clauses. First of all, it identifies these ten thousands of his saints in the kingdom. And then we get a second clause that we have to interpret and helps us to interpret as part of the first clause. And the second clause is quote clothed with the glory of his father close quote so it's not just that we have these ten thousands of his saints coming down it also tells us oh by the way they are clothed with the glory of his father so now coming back to our rule of interpretation we've got to take the whole of this scripture Taken together and give effect to every part of it if reasonably practicable, with each clause helping to interpret the other. Now, with that rule of law and that rule of interpretation in mind, we have clause number one He cometh in the cloud with ten thousands of His saints in the kingdom. Clause number two is They are clothed with the glory of His Father. Now, if you're going to be clothed with the glory of the Father, It's not hard to imagine that we're obviously not talking about sons of perdition because they have no glory at all. We're not talking about people who have celestial glory, because the glory of the Father does not extend down to them. We're not talking about people in the terrestrial kingdom, because they likewise do not receive the fullness of the glory of the Father. They only receive the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. Only in the celestial kingdom do we find people that have and receive the glory of the Father. Now, as we mentioned a moment ago, in section 131, there are three degrees of glory within the celestial kingdom. You have those who are exalted, and then you have those who are not exalted. And it's not a far stretch to imagine or to understand that if you are an unexalted member of the celestial kingdom, you're going to be basically experiencing or be in the presence of God the Father and therefore uh, you, you share that kind of glory, but they don't have that glory itself. That's reserved for people who are exalted. So the people who are like the Father and have the glory of the Father are those that are exalted in the celestial kingdom. And so essentially what this is telling us by having these Two clauses together we can now understand that the ten thousands of Saints that will accompany Christ at his second coming are those who are clothed with the glory of the Father they are like him they are exalted and so that means that they are like him in every possible sense of the word Meaning they're not exalted now, now, what does this mean? What's the bottom line here i'm I'm about to get off my soapbox. The bottom line is just getting into the celestial kingdom and being unexalted is not enough right? Exaltation is denied, however, to anyone who is worthy so don't don't worry if you feel like well the requirements for exhortation are that you have to live worthy of your temple covenants but i haven't had a chance to get to the temple yet or i haven't found that proper person who has asked me to marry him or i've been asked to marry or whatever right and uh don't concern yourself about that that's that's going to be taken care of and we learn that in the 137 section of the doctrine and covenants verse 7 it says all who have died without a knowledge of this gospel who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom close quote and so what this is telling us is those who have lacked an opportunity to receive the exalting ordinances will get them in due course if you are otherwise worthy to receive those covenants you can have the blessings of exaltation in your life but the concern is, and that I'm expressing is I'm I'm about to get off my soapbox, but the concern is for those who have the opportunity to live their life in conformity with the exalting ordinances of the temple and choose not to do it for one reason or another. You will not be numbered among these 10,000 saints at the second coming and have the glory of the Father. You will not be clothed with that kind of glory that the Father has. And so um, when you when we ask this question, who are these guys? Who are these 10,000 saints that are coming down at the second coming? It's essentially those who we're striving to be. It's us. It should be us. Hopefully will be us. Um, and And that's the point that I want to emphasize as we talk now about the second coming and the blessings that will flow from Uh, our worthiness, and our obedience to the uh, principles of the gospel. We get to be with him. We'll be in the clouds with him. All right. All right. So now it also says, in addition to talking about those who come with the clouds, that every eye shall see him. Now, this is probably an allusion to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, that states, quote, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together close quote Um, that's if you look at the specific language used by Isaiah it's a little bit more restrictive than the language used by John in Revelation 1 7 and I'm referring specifically to Isaiah's reference where he says all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord revealed together And if you compare that with what John says in Revelation 1, 7, he says, every eye shall see him. So it's not limited to those in the flesh, but it would be every eye. Now, similarly in Doctrine and Covenants section 101, 23, this is similar to the book of Isaiah, where also it states that all flesh shall see me together. Now, if we talk about flesh, we're talking about people who are mortal, We're talking about people who are translated. We're talking about people who are resurrected. But essentially, we're saying they have a physical body. They are not just a spirit. And so when we talk about this concept that all flesh shall see Christ together at his second coming, we're talking about anybody who's mortal, anybody who's resurrected, anybody who's translated, but who we're not talking about in those verses would be disembodied spirits in the post spirit world because they're not in the flesh right and so essentially if we look at John's version of this where he says every eye shall see him we would have to assume that his is more inclusive that even those who are disembodied spirits in the post-mortal spirit world will have the opportunity to see Christ at the time of his second coming when he comes in the clouds. Now, we have several things that tend to confirm this, and it it begins right in this verse itself, where it says specifically, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. Now, that's an obvious reference to the crucifixion that we find in John chapter 19. So let me just share with you verses 26 and 27, which states, quote, When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own house. So that's the scene where Jesus, a few verses later, in verses 34 and 37, has his side pierced by one of the soldiers, saying, quote, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came thereout blood and water. And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Close quote. Now, in that second reference, where uh, John refers to this other scripture, that says they look on him whom they pierced that's found in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 which states they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn close quote now having read that verse, I take us back to the verses I read a moment ago where we had this image of Jesus on the cross with his mother standing below him, looking upon him, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in this very touching scene, Jesus speaks to his mother saying, woman, behold thy son. And then he says to John, he kind of turned his head to the other, his head to one side. Behold, thy mother. And what essentially that means is that Jesus is giving the charge of his mother to John the disciple whom he loved, and he would then take charge of her uh, and would care for her from that hour on. Which is kind of an incredible, kind of touching scene because uh, uh, Mary had other children, she had other sons, and by right. They should be the ones that should take care of her and this is an obvious indication that uh, Joseph the stepfather of Jesus had probably died by this point in time and so that's why he's got to put his mother into the charge of John but he does that to the exclusion of Mary's other children. you know, if John never did call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, that very act, in and of itself, would tend to confirm that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Else, why would he uh, put in charge of his mother this very disciple? And so, anyway, it's a it's a very touching scene. And the the reason why I kind of lay that foundation with you a little bit is because this is the scene that happens. Uh, roughly 35 years before John has his vision on Patmos Island. He was there at the cross. He saw Jesus. He heard him speak to his mother. He heard Jesus speak to him. He saw the the mourning that Mary was going through of a woman who is losing her firstborn child, right? And then go back to Zechariah chapter 12, 10, where it talks about, They shall look upon me whom they pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. That would be like the father in heaven mourning for his only son and shall be in bitterness for me as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And that describes very well also the feelings of both God the father who is mourning for the loss of his first and only begotten son, but also for Mary who was there at the cross mourning in bitterness for the loss of her firstborn as she saw his side pierced by a spear from the Roman soldiers. Now, as we talk about this uh, and, and the people who are going to mourn at the time of the second coming, it is they which pierced him. So we need to talk a little bit about that because, of course, it was a Roman who took his spear and pierced Jesus' side, but speaking of the Romans, Jesus also said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For the Jews, on the other hand, there was no advocacy for their forgiveness. It was they who called for his crucifixion before Pilate, and for the release of Barabbas. And so Jesus was only there being pierced by the Romans who were acting as an instrumentality for the Jewish state, essentially, because it was their acts that ultimately resulted in his crucifixion. And so they are they who truly were those who pierced him. Now, since those that pierced him are those that also will wail because of him at the time of the second coming. You have to add this element of time. They pierced him 2,000 years ago, and they shall wail at the second coming because of him. And so essentially the only way that that possibly could occur, if we're speaking literally of the Jews who brought about the piercing of the Savior at the time of his crucifixion, then they would have to be those who are in the post-mortal spirit world as disembodied spirits, seeing and witnessing the second coming of Jesus Christ and wailing because now they recognize uh, what they had done. And probably you got to assume in the in the post-mortal spirit world, they had a pretty good idea uh, the, of what they had done, but because of these hard hearts, you know, it's the, the realization really comes at the time of the second coming. And, uh, and then as recorded here in Revelation 1-7, they begin to wail because of him. Now notice the, the play on words, and I've kind of alluded to this just a moment ago. In both Zechariah 12 and in John 19, what you have is the mourning of an earthly mother and the mourning of a heavenly father for the loss of the firstborn. And what you have by contrast is something that's quite antithetical to that. you have in revelation one seven the mourning of Christ's murderers who are in fear of him at the second coming and so that obviously relates to the Jews in that generation some two thousand years ago who pierced him. but I don't think it's just limited to that to that group because those in every generation who crucify him afresh, those who commit the unpardonable sin or those who take actions who are contrary to him have the effect of piercing Christ in every generation since then and all these shall wail because of him as well. I I feel that that's the proper interpretation. It's it's very broad, but uh, it certainly includes all those who are in spirit prison who have pierced him in whatever generation, they may have lived, they are not resurrected, they are not in the flesh, but John, because every eye shall see him, it includes these in the post-mortal spirit world who shall see him. But those in the in the flesh, of course, who will be witnesses of his second coming, uh, there are going to be those who are going to see this up close and personal, and they include the Jews living in Jerusalem who survived the great atrocities that are going to occur just before Christ appears on the Mount of Olives. And in Doctrine and Covenant, section 45, verses 52 through 53, it says, quote, Then shall they know that I am the Lord, for I will say unto them, These wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God and then shall they weep because of their iniquities. Then shall they lament because they persecuted their king." Close quote. Now we're talking here about people who are actually alive and see Christ's appearance on the Mount of Olives, and they weep because of their personal iniquities and lament because they persecuted their king in their generation, but also, somewhat collectively speaking, for their, all of their people who are their Jewish heritage because they've been persecuting the, the king since the time that they crucified him and have rejected him ever since then. Now, it even goes beyond that pe- that group of people who are up close and personal because what we learn is that all flesh everywhere, meaning all wicked people shall mourn at the time of the second coming. So it's a worldwide type of mourning that is going to occur particularly among wicked people this we learn in the joseph smith matthew in the pearl of great price chapter one verse thirty six which states quote and as i said before after the tribulation of those days and the powers of heaven shall be shaken then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, Close quote. So again, this is a worldwide type of mourning that is going to occur, and it describes as occurring among all the tribes of the earth. Now in this context, we have to understand what the word tribes mean because this word is commonly applied to the 12 tribes of Israel, but here we're describing nations and people in general Um, who have descended from a common ancestor and who dwell on the face of the earth. This is essentially almost the opposite of Israel as an elect people, and we're talking about tribes of the earth as those who are unbelievers. They are worldly. They are evil. Uh, The tribes would be synonymous with the kings uh, or the kindreds of the earth in uh, Revelation 1-7. And so, Consider also what it really means when this verse talks about the type of mourning that is going to occur at the second coming. And you might have this kind of idea of what it would be like for the wicked to mourn um, at the time of his second coming, knowing that they have not lived their lives in harmony with the teachings of the gospel. They've rejected the Savior. They have persecuted uh, Christians and believers and have done everything in their power to basically stamp out Christianity and Jesus Christ himself. What kind of mourning are these groups of people actually going to be going through? So what what can we expect? And in order to answer that question, you have to consider and put it in the context of what John would have been seeing as part of the Jewish customs at his time. So this is not some kind of a, a gentle, quiet weeping. Because in Jewish tradition and according to Jewish customs, when there was cause for mourning, there would, and we're talking, for example, when someone dies. What you would have are you'd have these loud howls of grief. Uh, That's the same would be true when conquerors come in and uh, destroy the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple, the kind of mourning and grief associated with those kinds of events conjure up these images of these loud howls of grief. And keep in mind back in the day uh, when someone died, for example, it was the practice of uh, the Jewish people to hire professional mourners uh, and the the, the swelling of their lamentations, their screams, their their noisy utterances uh, at the time of death, at the funeral procession, at the funeral. Uh, you know, I I've watched uh, some of the chosen episodes, and perhaps some of you have also, and there was an episode where you had the raising of the daughter of Jairus, remember, and Jesus comes into the home of Jairus, and they had some professional mourners in the scene, and they're kind of, ooh, you know something like that. Um, but at any rate, I, I I watched that verse and I'm thinking to myself, these guys are not nearly loud enough. I mean, you know, they are not earning their money. They've got to rend their clothes. They've got to be clothed in sackcloth. They should be casting dust or ashes on their head. Maybe they should shave their head or they're plucking out the hairs of their head or their beard and I mean just this weeping and wailing this big to do I mean if they were on a commission you know for depending on how loud you weep and wail the, these guys would not have been getting their commission because it just wasn't loud enough and it wasn't raucous enough but that's the kind of uh, the imagery that you have to have and not that uh it's going to necessarily be all that noisy but you have to understand that these outward expressions that we see in jewish traditions are a foreshadow of the kind of inward grief and mourning that is going to occur during the period of time of the future second coming. And so when you think of the word wail, which these people do, these professional mourners, it means to beat and to cut and then to beat or cut oneself in the breast as an expression of sorrow. It is a lament. It's a loud cry of intense grief. So think of it in this sense that if if you're physically injured, Just in some horrible, painful thing, you know, you you sit there. You're not biting the bullet. You're you're screaming. (laughs) This is kind of the expressiveness that you need to think when you think about what is. How are these people really going to be feeling, and what's it going to be like for those um, who have reason to mourn? And it's everybody who uh, is unworthy, who's guilty of uh, certain offenses against the Savior this is kind of thing that's going to be happening and so you have a literal mourning of the wicked for themselves and this is uh, because now they can't deny the the coming of christ there's no more rationalization about signs of the times and things that they have seen that should have led them to believe and understand that christ was coming it uh, gets beyond their refusal to recognize god and uh, dnc section 45 Uh, verses 49 through 50, describes this saying, quote, And the nations of the earth shall mourn, and they that have laughed shall see their folly, and calamity shall cover the mocker, and the scorner shall be consumed, and they that have watched for iniquity shall be hewn down and cast into the fire, close quote. So that's kind of a, a, I hope, a pretty clear picture of what it's going to be like for uh, the wicked going into the second coming so let's move on now and talk just a little bit about the last couple words here in Revelation 1 7 where after describing all of these things that are going to occur at the time of the second coming the declaration is made even so amen Now this is a double expression of so be it it is a, a double expression of assurance and certainty that is associated with everything that was just told us in Revelation 1 7 concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ now this double phrase even so is one phrase and the word amen is the second phrase they both basically express the same certainty about what is to happen as has been described and so even so is a greek expression and so as this goes out to the churches in asia minor and in all the the world at that time the expression even so is going to resonate with greek hearers because it is of a greek origin amen on the other hand is a hebrew expression and so it's going to resonate with the jewish hearers Um, and an amen is essentially an affirmation of a certainty rather than the expression of a wish and uh, so this is why at the it, it, when we have a prayer it is traditional for everyone to say amen because it expresses your agreement with what has been said with a wish or hope for those things to come true that have been requested in the prayer and so if you're not saying amen at the end of a prayer it basically means uh, I don't agree with that or I, I don't really hope that's going to come to pass. So you have to rethink if you're kind of a silent amen sayer, couldn't hurt to say it vocally or verbally. And you know, the, the use of the uh, the amen at the end of a prayer kind of reminds me of a uh, another event in my life when we were gathered as a family at my grandfather's ranch one year for Thanksgiving. And so there were a lot of aunts and uncles, cousins and everything, and we're all kind of gathered around the table for this uh, Thanksgiving celebration. And I have to warn you before I tell you this story that uh, I've often talked a little bit about my grandfather. He's a colorful character, and sometimes his language could be Uh, a little bit colorful as well. And so there would be an occasional hell and there would be an occasional dam included in uh, some of the sentences. And I typically, when I talk about what he says and how he says it, (laughs) I tend to kind of leave those words out. Um, But uh, I, I have to just warn you, I have to use the words as he exactly spoke them on this particular Thanksgiving because you just don't get the full flavor of what happens at this Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, as my grandfather calls upon my brother Peppy to to give the prayer and so I'm gonna throw those in there but I'm warning you in advance the, the it's a quote and you know I've always been told well you're not really swearing if you're just quoting somebody else <laughs> so, so I'm not quoting here I'm just quoting my grandfather but at any rate so here we are seated around the, the table for Thanksgiving and my brother Peppy is called upon by my grandfather to give the prayer a very great honor um, and so you know you naturally the pressures on when it's Thanksgiving and you're called on to give the prayer you want to make sure you cover the bases and you know it's more than the normal run-of-the-mill prayer right and so Pepe's prayer is kind of going on and on and uh, he's blessing the food and bless the hands of the people that prepared it but what really got my grandfather is when the next sentence Pepe's expressed was and bless the people that just kind of stood around and watched. <laughs> that was as much as my grandfather could say, and he he blurted out right in the middle of the prayer, "Oh hell, Peppy, get on with it." <laughs> and that's a quote. <laughs> now it wasn't much long after the interjection by my grandfather that uh, there was a loud resounding "Amen" by everyone. And so the question you have to ask yourself. As everyone was saying amen to this uh, prayer, was it an amen, meaning they were in agreement with what Peppy said, or a hope for the blessing on the people that just stood around and watched and didn't do anything to prepare the Thanksgiving dinner, or was it an affirmation, hope, and prayer of what Grandpa said when he said, just get on with it? <laughs> but I think of amen, and that's what I think about. You know, my mind is a little bit warped, but uh, essentially in this affirmation in Revelation 1-7, what we have an affirmation of is that Christ cometh with clouds, and we've talked about these 10,000 exaltation-worthy people, that every eye shall see him, including they which pierced him and all the kindreds, tribes of the earth, and all these shall wail because of him. That's what we're affirming. Even so, amen, at the end of this verse. And so that gives you some sense of uh, what John is talking about here in this verse. And let's move now to the other verse that we'll be talking about today, which is Revelation eight that says, quote, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty, close quote. And so now notice here when we're looking at this verse, essentially this confirms that Jesus Christ himself is speaking to us here in verses 7 and 8 because he identifies himself uh, with the name and title of Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So that kind of makes what we've already talked about in the last verse a little bit more impressive because when he says even so a man about Christ coming every eye seeing him etc etc it's an impressive affirmation because Christ is the one who is declaring it to be so and in Greek and in Hebrew he's saying essentially it's gonna happen you can take that to the bank now he didn't say take that to the bank that's just me but uh, essentially that's what the, the meaning is so what, what is this concept or the name title of Alpha and Omega we want to talk about that just a little bit uh, obviously this is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet and it is an expression of Christ as the eternal one it's the uh, Greek equivalent of in the New Testament to the Hebrew words in the Old Testament of Isaiah who said that Christ would be the first and the last so when we talk about uh, Alpha and Omega, first and the last, those are basically synonymous terms that have the same meaning. Now, some teachers uh, who are Jews uh, and Jewish teachers call God the Elf and the Tav, which are the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Here, we're talking about it in Greek, but if you were a Jewish teacher talking about you know how some people view the savior and stuff they would probably use the terms elf and Tav. all right now if you wanted to describe jesus as the god of truth that would be the equivalent of the hebrew emet which if you spell that out so that's an acronym but if you spell it out it's basically elf mem tav which are the first middle and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's an expression of Jesus Christ as the God of truth. And so Jesus refers to himself as Alpha and Omega 13 times in the Doctrine and Covenants. And there's a whole host of other occasions when the the concept of Alpha and Omega is used in the scriptures, including the book of Revelation. We also find a reference to Alpha and Omega on two stone carvings in the exterior of the Salt Lake Temple. So I've just put up an image of uh, one of the two stone carvings that you'll find. And so essentially on either end of the temple, in the lower windows of the east and west center towers, meaning the front and the back of the temple, it kind of goes from east to west. So on the front window of the center tower, on the front and then again in the back, you have this image of the uh, keystones in the lower windows, So that's one place that uh, you can also find a reference to this concept of Jesus Christ as Alpha and Omega. Now there's another image associated with this. That, let me throw up another one where you have the saying of Alpha Chi Omega. So you have Alpha, the b- first letter, Omega, the last letter. And the Omega is a little horseshoe kind of thing. So A looks like an A or Alpha looks like an A. Omega is like the horseshoe looking thing. And then the Chi is actually like a cross. And so Chi or the X is the sign of the cross for Jesus Christ. And so what you'll find in a lot of artwork is the use of this Alpha Chi Omega almost sounds like a fraternity or sorority or something like that. But at any rate, you have the Alpha Chi Omega uh, which is the sign for Jesus Christ? So you have him being the alpha and omega, and then in between is the chi, which is the symbol of the cross. And so a lot of times in this artwork, you'll find something. And this this is a lot in the Catholic Church. You have uh, an image. Of the Alpha and Omega and in between them you have these shepherds hooks that are crossed in the form of an X in between them and this this is some of the papal symbolism that you'll kind of see and it's a sign for Alpha Chi Omega which is a sign for Jesus Christ and not just him as the Alpha and Omega but the imagery associated with the uh, the cross and so if you look at about the uh, references to Alpha and Omega in the book of Revelation itself there are actually four of them which is kind of noteworthy again we we get into this issue of numbers and symbols that I describe in podcast number five uh, because here you have essentially two references of Alpha and Omega in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, and uh, in verses eight and verses eleven, and then you go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation in the last two chapters, uh, chapter twenty-one six and twenty-two thirteen, the reference to Alpha and Omega appears again. So you've got these two groups of two, which total four expressions of Alpha and Omega in the book of Revelation and four, of course is the world number which we uh, interpret as an expression of Christ being the Alpha and Omega to the whole world and so this kind of placement of these terms in the book of Revelation if you understand the numerology and the symbology uh, it adds greater meaning than just saying it's Alpha Omega, he said it four times, whatever, okay? And so they, all these things have meaning. And so if you look at the uh, the term Alpha itself, that refers, of course, to Christ as the first, first begotten spirit of the Father, In the pre-mortal spirit world, he qualifies to be the first or the alpha because he was literally the first begotten spirit of the Father. Okay, it's also in the sense of him being an alpha because he was preeminent in premortality and at all times. So you know, we we talk about this concept of the quote-unquote alpha male. Well that's jesus christ in the truest sense of the world he was preeminent he had supremacy at all times from the time of his birth in pre-mortality all the way through the end of the earth in this generation now omega if you look at its application to jesus christ how is he the omega or the last well first of all he's the last in the sense that he was also the only begotten of the father so while we can say on the one hand that he was first begotten of the father in the flesh he was also the last begotten of the father in the flesh because he's the only one that uh, was the literal offspring of our heavenly father in the flesh so in that sense he was uh, the Omega. And we can also talk about how Jesus was the uh, first and last great sacrifice of a God uh, who was uh, slain to atone for mankind and to redeem all men. And so in that sense, when we talk about the first and the last great sacrifice of a God, we're talking again about the Alpha and Omega. And this, because Alpha and Omega have the connotation of eternal life, eternalness, uh, eternity, these kinds of things. This would be another way of essentially saying that when Christ was the first and last great sacrifice, we that's equivalent to saying that his atonement is infinite and eternal. He also redeemed all his creations from first to last. All things center in Christ, meaning all things past, present, and future. Um, All these things are circumscribed by the two bookends of Alpha and Omega. Uh, Another concept associated with the Alpha and Omega is that faith and hope began with Christ in premortality, and then he then becomes the end and finisher of our faith. And the work that Jehovah began as Alpha in pre-mortality, he will also finish as Omega at the end of the earth. So all of these things are kind of illustrations of how the concept of Alpha and Omega expresses itself in various symbols and in things that uh, ultimately describe Jesus Christ. So in Revelation 1.8, another phrase that we encounter is this concept of the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. So I've already talked about this because it appears in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, which I described in my podcast uh, section number 7 for Revelation uh, 1, 4 through 6 on January 7. So if you want some more information about the grammar and, uh, issues associated with this particular phrase, go back and, and listen to that podcast specifically focusing on, uh, verse four, where it talks about how that relates to, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, the other phrase that we find in, uh, verse eight is the title of the almighty. So in Greek, the word Almighty uh, is the the word Pantokrater, uh, which means the all-powerful one. It's used 10 times in the New Testament and nine of them are found in the book of Revelation. So this particular Greek word is an expression of authority, sovereignty, power, omnipotence. In Hebrew, the corresponding word for Almighty is Shaddai, and Jehovah Sabaoth and or Sabaoth and uh, the uh, this basically means the lord of hosts it is something that uh, reflects a uh, all-powerful being uh, both of heaven and of earth and someone uh, who has the power to overcome all foes and so in a very real sense uh, there is no higher name than to designate Jesus Christ as the Almighty. And it's a name also that's applied to the Father. But what it essentially means is that there is an unqualified subjection of all created things to Christ. And it's not focused on Christ as the Creator, but His supremacy over all creation. It essentially means that there is nothing that is not in subjection to Him And under him and so some of the synonyms for this would be all-powerful and omnipotent and uh, we find an expression of the use of this word in Revelation 4 8 which is part of John's vision of the celestial paradise where he sees these four beasts in uh, in paradise and that verse reflects that these beasts rest not day and night saying quote holy 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 Lord God Almighty, close quote, and that's a uh, what we would call the trisagion, this triple holy, three times holy, and three is a, a symbolic number, um, and so go back and listen to my podcast again. <laughs> you have to pay attention to all these numbers because they just pop up randomly uh in various places and if you understand them then these things mean something but the trisagion is essentially the highest form of worship and the reason why it is pronounced in revelation 4 8 as this high form of worship is because they're worshiping the lord god almighty there's no one higher that you can possibly worship of this generation and so uh that is what we find in terms of the reflection of the type of worship that should exist. So essentially, that kind of concludes John's introduction to the second coming. And the I guess the takeaway for all of this is that when that second coming comes, uh, we're all going to see it. It doesn't matter. If we've died, if we're in the spirit world, if we're in the flesh, if we're resurrected, translated, whatever the case might be, we we all have the opportunity to see it. Now, some are going to have really good seats for that event. And it's these ten thousands of saints that are going to have really great seats for the the event of a lifetime. And then there are going to be some... We're going to really have the cheap seats and it's not going to be a happy day. It's uh, the uh, great and dreadful day. This is dreadful for those who have not lived their lives in such a way as to receive the blessings of his second coming and have to mourn because of it. So that's kind of the takeaway from uh, uh, today's lesson on the introduction to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, for tomorrow's podcast, as you know, I'm doing two podcasts or two podcasts podcast with a silent G each week could stay on schedule for getting done through the entire book of Revelation in three and a half years but uh, tomorrow's podcast will be section nine from the book and it'll be uh, verses nine through eleven in Revelation chapter one and this deals with John's charge to write his letters to the uh, seven churches so I want to Thank you all for listening and subscribing and talking to all your friends and letting them know that uh, these podcasts are uh, alive and well, or at least I like to think that they're alive and well. And so hopefully I will see you tomorrow. Even so, amen. (laughs) So now, right, you got to be asking yourself, okay, when he says even so, amen, at the end of this podcast, is that an expression of hope or an affirmation? Of a certain outcome that you'll still be listening tomorrow and for me it is an expression of my hope in that certain outcome as we come to this uh, the end of this podcast but you know I I keep just kind of keep going on all of a sudden it dawns on me this is kind of like the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off and if you've seen that movie with Matthew, Matthew Broderick you'll remember as you get down to the end of the movie well throughout the movie Ferris is always talking to people watching the movie and he's he's telling them certain things and so he breaks that that line and talks directly into the camera at, at various times and so finally we get down to the end of the movie and it's a classic uh, they're going through all the credits but as the credits are playing they're continuing to show various scenes of the conclusion of the movie and finally you get down to the end of the credits the movie is really truly done there are no more credits to play no other scenes from the movie but yet all of a sudden you see this hallway in Ferris Bueller's house and in the hallway toward the end of the hallway on the left side is the bathroom and as the movie's coming to an end Ferris sticks his head out of the bathroom and and walks down out of the bathroom toward the camera in his bathrobe looking a little bit surprised because we're all still here watching (laughs) so as he's approaching the camera he says you're still here it's over go home (laughs) and then he starts to turn around and he's headed back toward the bathroom And he, uh, as he's, the last thing he has to say, as he's getting ready to go back in the bathroom, he turns, waves his hand, and says, Go.